When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrive, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value, customer centricity, and everything it takes to make sure that you are doing right by your customers, building your customer's business, using your stuff, not selling your stuff. Today, I have an old college friend and uh, somebody that I've been, whose career and success I've been watching from afar for decades, Michael Walters. Michael, welcome. Uh, welcome, Mark. So pleased that you invited me into this and uh, excited to uh, participate. Yep. So, Michael, right after college, you went back to um, New Jersey, New, uh, northern New Jersey, New York area, and got into the commercial real estate business. Is that right? Right out of school? That's correct, Mark. Um, I went to school an extra term. I went four and a half years, uh, finished up uh, December of 80 and January 2. I loaded up my uh, Camaro and drove east and started my first day in the real estate business, January 2, 1981, for the Hanson family. Wow. And worked for that family for a long time. Um, so that would be, this would be my 41st year. My first year, I worked as assistant to the chairman of John Hanson, chairman of Hampshire Management. And at that point, the Hanson family was going through a transition that there were three Hanson principals. They all had kids. They all had their different operating companies, but at one point they were all together. So um, John Hanson was chairman of Hampshire. His older brother, Peter, was chairman of James E. Hanson, Inc. And that is the traditional uh, brokerage and management company. At that point, Hampshire that I worked for was more of a syndicator and uh, was syndicating real estate investment deals. Wow. So you've, you know, you, you got, and since then you've actually done a lot of the transactional work, the brokerage work. Uh, do you still do syndication work? You know what? I'm involved in some uh, syndication deals that I'm a partner in. I actually have one industrial building that I'm the managing partner of. And I typically on an annual basis uh, invest in one or two limited partnership deals um, that, uh, uh, they also have uh, a significant tax advantages to invest. So I'm, I, I'm an owner investor, but uh, 90% of my efforts are in the brokerage business and uh, 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 brokerage fees and commissions represent 90% of my annual revenue. Yeah. So um, forgive my near outsider's perspective, but I was for eight years, I was in commercial real estate lending. And when I was at GE Capital, one of the, our sources for for business 
was brokers. We'd call on brokers and say, are you working with a client to buy or sell a property? Um, and we'd try to insert ourselves and get see if the financing that we offered was, was appropriate. And um, brokerage is kind of a bare knuckle business. Um, it is, Mark. Brokerage is a tough business. And uh, it took me a while to, uh, um, I guess, transition from being a Midwesterner and the Midwesterners have a certain style of business and how they deal with people and circumstances versus the East Coast and the East Coast. Um, I'm 12 minutes away or actually, yeah, 12 minutes away from the George Washington Bridge uh, to get into New York City. Uh, our number of brokers and brokerage firms uh, within a 10 mile radius is, is, is probably 10 to 20 firms and uh, it is, it's a tough business. And uh, it took me a while to uh, uh, shed my uh, Midwestern uh, um, acceptance of people versus knowing that I had to go a little bit further than that in the East Coast with the uh, landlords and the people that I was dealing with. Get, get it in writing, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and brokers will, I mean, I don't think this is insulting, but brokers will snake a deal from each other even if it's their mother. Um, there, there, well, let me say there's a fair number of them who would. Uh, Mark, brokerage is a bare knuckle business. And I would say that there are even times that uh, uh, we compete uh, uh, in-house for certain pieces of business. We are a little bit more genteel because the majority of the people that I work with here, I've worked with for 10, 20, sometimes 35 years. So you get to know people, but at the end of the day, the commission that you make uh, uh, goes to your family and pays your bills, and uh, you'd rather have it be you than the uh, 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 certainly your competitors. And and you know, a, lot, a lot of times uh, we could be competing uh, in house for the same business, but that doesn't happen much because we do have a matter of respect for our coworkers here. But every now and then it happens in house as well. Yeah. So I want to contrast that real bare knuckles, highly competitive dynamic with the dynamic between, that's between brokers and brokers, but between brokers and clients, you compete by, well, some brokers compete by being better and being of greater service and being of greater value. And I imagine you didn't get 40 years in the business in your position without um, having, a, you know, without, being better that way? Well, Mark, one of the ways that I differentiated myself from my competitors and also my, my co-workers, um, coming from the Midwest and coming into northern New Jersey and New York, it's, it's a very challenging transit hub with getting around, understanding the areas, and having spent the first 22 years of my life in Michigan, where everything was pretty much on a square grid and I knew how to get wherever I was going without a map and then converting to having to use a map. What, what I found that on Saturday night, I would leave about five o'clock and when I lived by myself and hadn't had my network of friends and I would drive around till I got lost and, uh, and then try to get home. That gave me a leg up. But the other thing that I did different is I did not want to be a street broker and a street broker is you farm at territory. You define your geographic territory you know, every property and every owner in that territory. I went more towards relationship driven. And then early on in my career, I started working on uh, multinational assignments where it was easier for me to hop on a plane and go to LA, Chicago, 
Houston or Dallas and co-broker with someone there when I had control of the customer versus trying to slug it out to try to get a listing or a client um, uh, uh, in our backyard here. Yeah. And so the that differentiation of relationship and being a value, um, I spend a lot of time with my clients saying it's not just about that personal affinity. It's not just about that no like and trust factor. It's about actually understanding their business, what they're trying to accomplish and turning a transaction from a generic real estate track transaction into a customized transaction that helps them accomplish exactly what they wanted, including those little nuances that only you know. Um, and, and that's understanding your customer, Mark. And the other, the other point is, is that when you speak to your customer, and typically I would be looking for someone that had more than 10 real estate locations throughout the country. And I would say to them, you may not think you're in the real estate business, but you are in the real estate business. And whether it's leases or ownership, that these leases will turn, your needs will change and understanding your processes, what, what's included, what, what's, what's your product? How do you make your product? Where do you get your materials from? Where do you get your employees, employees from? Um, and understanding that. And once you have a success with a transaction, then the next phase two is, hey, where are you going next? What other real estate? Because you've seen that I've delivered in this transaction. And why would you risk going into the phone book and finding someone else that you don't have a track record with? And that's how I built on uh, past deals and built my relationships with customers. And then you've got companies that are constantly being buying, uh, bought and sold that each time you stand the risk of losing your client, but that's the glass is half full, half empty. The glass is half full when you say, okay, this is a bigger company, another opportunity, a chance to meet someone else and expand the relationship. Yeah, I'm gonna go back to what you said. And that is when you're talking to a client, you realize that a part of their business model is a real estate business. I mean, they aren't a real estate business, but if they are in a mortar uh, in a business that requires some bricks and mortar real estate, that's an expense. That's a big important part of their balance sheet and helping them figure out how that works. You know, I worked with uh, a big national retailer who refused to own property because they said their capital is best spent on inventory, and that makes sense for that particular company. But there are other companies where it's a, uh, a company that could be almost the same size, but um, they have a real estate arm and they view their real estate and their locations as a strategic advantage. So it's not that every business needs the same thing. It's every business might think they need something different and you're, you're there to help them figure out if they're right, to guide them to the right thing and then to help them accomplish that better than anybody else can. Well, and that's true. And the other thing with that, how I position my services is I said, um, hey, listen, give me a shot at working on something. You don't have to sign a piece of paper. You don't have to give me a contract. I'll, on my own expense, I will fly out to Dallas or LA or Chicago and I'll look, I'll look for office space. I'll look for an industrial building. And I just ask if you do a transaction in that marketplace, you honor me. And at that point, it works or it doesn't work. And, uh, and also, I work with other brokers in each of these marketplaces. So I have the customer, they have the local expertise. And 
years ago, some people may push back where they say, well, what, I don't need you to hop on a plane and come out here to Chicago. And I would say, you want me to because I'm with the customer. I know what he needs and I'll make sure that your time is not wasted. And we're going to split our fee on a 50-50 basis. And it has worked very well for my career. That's that's really great, Michael. And um, so I've seen a couple of your posts and so, a couple of your articles talking about some very specific real estate types. You know, uh, typically the, the arc of a, a commercial broker, the way I, I've seen it shake out uh, from my, you know, from my seat in the financing, which is almost a front row seat, is that you start saying I do a little bit of everything, right? When you go from residential to commercial, you, you think commercial is just like it, but bigger transaction size. Um, I, you know, I, I train early, early career folks that there's only three things different between residential and commercial. Everything you do, everything you say, and everything you think. Mark, that's, that's such a uh, good point. Um, I bought and sold condos that I lived in. I moved two times in houses and I, I hired residential brokers and I'm not a big fan of residential brokers. Now it used to be uh, the residential brokers made smaller fees, but now with houses moving, some residential brokers can do very, very well. But I, I am not a big fan of residential brokers coming in the business because there's so much different that residential brokers will write their own contracts. In Michigan, you can have a residential broker prepare a contract, sign it, and a lawyer will never see it versus commercial. It's more dealing with lawyers and contracts and uh, uh, residential is a very good point, a totally different business. And I have to say that um, every now and then I have a resident residential broker and uh, let's say maybe I have a little bit of fun. Oh gosh. Yeah. You know, um, he, here's my, yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to expand on it this much, but residential real estate is a flow business. And that is to be successful as a residential real estate agent, you have to have a constant flow uh, through your pipeline of leads coming in and listing appointments and whatever showing appointments and then transactions and you automate the transactions and, and you succeed by either by some combination of making your transaction processing flexible to everything you're going to see and forcing everything you see into your machine, right? So that it fits your machine. It's a flow business. And you yeah. succeed by getting more stuff through there. Where in commercial real estate, it's a piece part business. Each commercial transaction is its own special jewel with its own special rubric. It's its own unique Rubik's cube that you have to solve on an individual basis. And you have to slow down to speed up and understand the nuances of an individual transaction and create a transaction that is the opposite of standardized. Mark, that's an excellent point. And the other big, huge difference is residential brokers work at night and on the weekends. And I, I don't work at night and on the weekends, <laughs> unless I'm with a client having dinner and drinks. And then also you touched upon earlier about specialization. And yes, one of my subspecialties is refrigeration and uh, freezer space which uh, I'm a member of International Association Refrigeration and Warehouse, which is a, a niche business. It's a difficult business because the capital required to set up a freezer or refrigeration business typically leads the operator to own their real estate. 
because the cost of setting up freezer refrigeration can be equal to the cost of the actual bricks and mortar. So I've, I've been working that part of the business. I had a company called HelloFresh and HelloFresh, uh, um, I set up the, the first national grid with uh, New York, New Jersey, Dallas, and San Francisco. And they had a very significant freezer and refrigeration portion of their business. So that gave me uh, um, uh, an entree into it and have done um, some transactions, not as many as I would have liked, but uh, it's an interesting business because the multiples of rent with refrigeration, if we're talking about, you know, right now in Northern New Jersey, our rents are 12 to 14 bucks a foot. That same space in refrigeration or freezer would be 18 to 22 bucks a foot. So if you're a landlord, you have to invest more, but your returns can be much greater. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm speaking, uh, when I was at GE Capital, we got burned once and would never, we would never touch a refrigerated unit. Um, a company stopped paying their rent, disappeared and moved out. And it took us, however, you know, 90 days to six months to get access to the building. By then it was, we opened the door and it's nothing but um, ooze flowing out from all the stuff that has been rotting for six months. And Mark, that, that, that's another good point too, because a lot of times you get into these older buildings, if the, the companies are not vital or making money, the first place they'll stop spending money is taking care of their freezer and refrigeration units. And a lot of times we'll go into buildings where we think it's got a great component, but the actual facilities and functions are functionally obsolete and uh, almost worthless. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's a really, that's a really interesting niche. And you know, where, where I was going before we got sidetracked onto the differences between commercial and residential is that typically you, um, as a broker, commercial broker gets more and more experience, they tend to specialize in a product type, which, you know, might be one of the four basic food groups of multifamily, um, office, industrial, and multifamily, but, but uh, you've got a subspecialty within in industrial slash warehouse, and that is that refrigerated or, or freezer. And that is a subspecialty that is a specialty all on its own. And somebody who walks into that specialty without knowing um, what they're looking for or what to ask for or what um, what you need to make sure that the, con the, the transaction contains, what kind of assurances, um, you can do a lot of harm to a client without even knowing it. Exactly. And, um, you know, the, the, the other point too is, you know, all through my career, my 41 years, they, they were preaching, you've got to specialize, you've got to do something. And I, I chose to do corporate services. When you look at a corporation, one of my big companies I dealt with was Ingersoll Rand and they had everything. I sold a salmon fishing camp in New Brunswick, Canada for them. I sold a uh, a shed building. And with the, the salmon camp, I had to delve into salmon counts and the salmon log and, and, and what, what, what it cost on a day on the river and things like that. And believe it or not, I found my customer from putting an ad in the Atlantic Salmon Journal. And I had to travel to Canada on a Thanksgiving weekend and drive in the middle of nowhere and have a closing and, 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 and some, some cabin in the middle of nowhere that I could not find it on a map. So did that with, you know, all the way to the other end of, uh, you know, large industrial buildings for Ingersoll Rand uh, uh, throughout the country, 200, 300,000 square foot plants. And 
Illinois, Arkansas, Texas. Um, I had a lot of fun, Mark. That's great, Michael. And so what do you think, you know, if, if you had some young person just starting and you were, you had decided they had enough potential to, so that you wanted to vote, invest in their career as a mentor, uh, what are some of the most important advice you'd give them? Wait, that's a tough one. I, I have a, a new person, um, Cam Silverstein, who graduated High Point, who was an intern for me. Cam is now with me his third year. And um, uh, the intelligence of kids out of college today, the challenge of our business is it takes five years to truly understand the business. And typically, we do not pay salaries. Um, you get uh, um, um, a draw in antici anticipation of making commissions. And it's not that easy. And also, um, it's not a business for someone to do as a mid-career change. For instance, someone in their 30s or 40s, which may have kids and may have a mortgage, to go from getting a salary to being on a commission, it's a very difficult transition. So to have someone start today that wants to learn, uh, uh, Cam lived in his parents' house for the first two years. So he had very low overhead. Um, and, um, you know, just as a sponge wants to learn, understand business. I think the skills you look for, what I look for in young people are um, uh, uh, communication skills, being able to keep your head on your shoulders and stay calm and, and not get distracted by wanting to, you know, bag the elephant, do the big deal. I try to explain the guys that real estate transactions are like a meal. You need a salad, you need a vegetable, you need some protein. You got a little bit of this. And also you can't, when you're younger, uh, shoot for a home run. You got to have some singles, doubles. You know, there are a lot of people who make a whole career out of singles and doubles and never hit a home run. Um, so uh, those are some of the skills that uh, I would look for in a young person. And I, the one thing that we changed as well is we've gone towards teams. There's hardly, I don't know anybody in our 50, 50 salespeople shop um, that works by themselves. It's either a team of two or a team as many as three or four. It's really all about the teams. Okay. And so... What it takes to succeed is uh, the time to learn, the patience to learn, and the ability to be a sponge. Uh, is there anything about that customer focus? I, I think I'm going to I'm going to give you my hypothesis of something you need to look for, and you tell me if I'm right or you know walk, talk, walk me off the cliff, uh, talk me off the ledge. Um, I think you need somebody with a client focus who realizes that the straightest path to success isn't the straight line to getting a close. It's a straight line to get your customer the best. You know, it, it, it's not a straight line. It's a line through your customer. It's your customer's straight line. Um, and you have to slow down to speed up and you have to realize that going at a problem straight on rather than straight on through your customer's eyes is the wrong way. You know, Mark, um, that's something I think about and try to teach because we're taught to be predators, close every deal, to push to close. And at a certain point with a customer, if you look at a transaction and that customer is, is validating the uh, nuances of the transaction, is it good for me? Is it bad for me? And then you've got a real estate salesperson who's got some time into the whole experience trying to push them to make that decision to close that deal versus saying, you know what? 
I'm going to know you a long time. You're a talented professional, and this is one transaction. And maybe this isn't the one for you. Maybe we pass because I'll be there for the next one, and I'll be for there for one after that. But if if the customer gets the vibe that you're pushing that transaction just to make your commission, and it may not be to his benefit, th- that's something that is a learned skill as well. And for instance. Um, we've worked on an office requirement that we've shown 35 buildings over a year. Nothing's right. The customer didn't like it. They want, they didn't like this building. They wanted to go over there. The space wasn't right. Um, we found a building, um, and then they were not making a decision. Um, I got a call yesterday that, Hey Mike, we sold our company. Uh, we sold our company to someone five times as large. Uh, we're probably going to need more space. And I said to him, I said, Andy, not a problem. You're a young guy. You just made a bunch of money on selling your company. You're going to have more companies and more transactions. I'm here for the long haul. So don't feel bad because we're not doing this real estate transaction. No, I think that that's wise. And, and um, I, you know, I, I've heard of a friend who says, you know, sell like you're already doing in business together. Uh, sell like you don't need the deal. I always... Uh, I always had my best sales success when I was way above quota already, when I didn't need the deal. And well, when I could walk, when I could tell a customer, let's make sure this is right for you because I don't need this deal. I need you to want this deal. Um, and when you're obviously, you know, I, I tell young salespersons, you know, you can't push a rope. Exactly. Um and there's only one person who gets to decide whether they're going to sign. And if you try to, if you try to push it, you're trying to push a rope and a, it's not going to work. And B it's a lot of effort and you just tie things up in knots and it's uh, it's short-sighted and the kind of time investment it takes to get good at this business is it's really bad to waste that time by fumbling the relationship you've built during that learning curve. I totally agree. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, it's a fun business. Uh, what do you want to do with the rest of your career, Michael? I mean, you've got kids that are just finishing up school. Um, you could, now your money's your own and not some colleges anymore. And, uh, so t- tell us what you what what you want to do next, or what you want to. I'm almost there, Mark. I'm almost there. I, with three kids, I figure I break it down into 12, 12 years of college. I've got eleven of twelve paid for. So next January, I'll have a very substantial raise. And you know, I'm at the point where every now and then I say to myself, you know, why am I doing this? I, it's typically maybe after I don't get a deal and I, I beat myself up and I lose a night of sleep and second guess myself and what did I do? And then I, that's the beauty of this business. You may have a bad day on Monday, but you wake up on Tuesday and the phone rings, that old client calls and you're just you know pumped up and ready to jump at it. Um, I, I wanna spend more time on investment real estate. Um, I love to travel. Uh, you, you may now and then see my uh, Road Warrior travel log, which. I, I, I really turned it down uh, during COVID because I didn't want to be insensitive to people and traveling. And as I'm, you know, as I'm doing a, a, a track, um, I do love to travel. And uh, the Hanson family that I work for, our chairman is 89 years old. And he said to me last week, 
you know, he, someone said retirement. He said, why would you retire? you got the best job in the world. How do I get your job, Mike? Yeah. Um, good, good for you. Uh, is there any, anything that anybody can, uh, how can people get a hold of you? Let's start with that. Um, Mark, I appreciate it. Um, uh, NEI James E. Hansen. We're in Teterboro, New Jersey. Uh, my email is mwalters at naihansen.com. And my cell phone's 201-232-7111. Anybody who's interested and wants to pick my brain, get some free advice, uh, please contact me any which way. And I really appreciate you giving me a shot to uh, uh, put my pitch out there, Mark. Uh, Mike, it wasn't a pitch. It was a conversation about what it takes to be successful in your business. And uh, I love your focus, your customer focus and being of service to them. Uh, you compete best by looking at the customer, not looking at the people you're running a race against. And uh, you exemplify that. I really appreciate that. And Mark, I have to say, being a guy that uh, grew up in Zealand, Michigan, went to Zealand High School and Hope College, uh, I never dreamed that I would have the career that I've had, the travels that I have, and I'm truly a blessed person. And I'm also blessed to know you that we can reconnect at this level as well, Mark. You bet. Well, Michael, uh, what a pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast. We remind you that the decision to buy, value, and everything important in your business all happens in your customer's mind. So business is a lot more like brain surgery than you might have thought. Have a high-value day. These pots in a week. Maybe his current supplier screwed things up, put him up a creek. And I don't know why he wants 4,000 of our gold-plated thingamabobs with the custom unobtainium mojo option. What do you mean the custom unobtainium mojo option cost us more than 20 bucks by itself? Are you sure he knows that? Then why'd he tell me 20 bucks? Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blue. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.